Sandy and I have been to some awkward meals. And the other night as we were discussing what was the most awkward we've ever been to, we agreed it had to have occurred in 1984. We were in seminary in St. Louis, and I had the privilege to just about every Sunday go across the river into southern Illinois, rural section, and to preach at tiny country PCA churches. Love doing this. And the typical pattern there was I would preach in the morning, go to somebody's house in the, the church, usually a farmhouse, and we would rest there. Had two little boys at that time and, and would try to put them down for a nap before the evening service. But this Sunday, this Sunday, an elder came up to us after the morning service and he said, I guess you're coming to my house for lunch today. I thought that was a rousing invitation. So, <clears throat> so sure enough, we followed him to his house and and uh, I said, do you have any children? Yes, we have a daughter. Wasn't at the table. And after about 10 minutes, the elder leaned his head down the hall and said, come out here and join us for lunch. And we heard coming from the hall, I'm not coming to lunch. Uh, well, this is getting off to a great start already. <clears throat> and then the elder's wife kind of shuffled around, banged cabinet doors, and finally pulled a couple of cans of green beans out of the cabinet and poured them into a bowl and set them in the microwave and said, here's lunch. And they went into the next bedroom and we could hear them not in whispered tones arguing about this. And she said, you didn't tell me you were bringing home the preacher for lunch. And so then the conversation was sort of awkward. I was at somebody else's house, but I thought I need to initiate. This man looks really downcast. And we had to stay there because I was preaching the evening service. And for several hours, we kept wondering if we were going to be in the middle of a full-scale rumble. Well, our, our text today tells us about an even more awkward meal. I hope you have your Bible open to Luke 14, because we will certainly be examining it in great depth. For several weeks, we've been examining the parables of Christ. And in the parable we'll open up this morning, what you see is nothing less than a history of the progress of the kingdom of God and how it is intended to spread in the world. And the kingdom of God is pictured as a feast, a banquet. But this parable contains some very solemn words from our Lord Jesus. And I want you to note very carefully the solemnity and the weightiness because in this joyful parable, the Lord Jesus makes sure to say that some men, many men, will never taste of his goodness or come to this banquet. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to hear this word aright, and so let's ask for that now. Oh, gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry now for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. We pray through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Look at the context of this parable. It begins in chapter 14, verse 1. It's a Sabbath meal at a, at a leading Pharisee's house. It's a ruler of the Pharisees. And the whole affair is tension-filled from the moment Jesus walked through the door. We're told this in verse 1, that he's being carefully watched. And the conversation immediately is, is charged and adversarial from the moment Jesus asks these Pharisees if it was lawful for him to heal a sick man, it being the Sabbath. No one answered. So Jesus gives a rationale for mercies of ministry on the Lord's day. 
And then we're told in verse 4 that he miraculously, sovereignly heals the man. The Pharisees are hot. Since they don't agree that the Lord's day is for mercy. Let me say that again. The Pharisees are mad. They're angry with Jesus. Mad enough to kill him sooner. Because they don't agree that the Lord's day is for the exercise of mercy. So then in verses 7 through 14, you'll notice what Jesus does. He, he addresses, and now it's getting more and more awkward in the room. Jesus addresses their sham hospitality, their pride, and he commands them to seek the lowest place and invite the lowest people. Now by this time, Jesus has offended every single person in the room, everyone. He's offended the Pharisees by healing a man on the Sabbath in verse 4. He's offended the invited guest in verse 7 by telling them not to seek the best seats in the house. And in verse 12, he's, he's offended the host by criticizing his guest list. The affair has become a disaster. Everyone is mortified. The room is charged with tension. And so this man in verse 15... This man tries to to bring a little lightness to the tension. He's an unnamed guest. Look what he does in verse 15. He tries to cut through the tension, and he utters a statement that he thinks will bring universal agreement. He says, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. The Pharisees who were seated around the table, they believed in eternal salvation, and they spoke of it, as sitting at a table in the banquet feast of heaven. This was deeply biblical. For example, in their Old Testament, in Isaiah 25, they had the word, the prophecy of the the banquet, the eternal banquet, which reads, The Lord of hosts will make up for all people a feast, a feast of wines, of fat things full of marrow. And the psalmist in that most beloved of all psalms in Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. In other words, you you welcome me to your table as an honored friend and guest. My cup runs over. That's table language. And of course, every Pharisee around that table believed that he, they, would be numbered among the distinguished and honored guests at this heavenly eternal banquet. In other words, look carefully at verse 15. Here's what the exclaimer, who's trying to bring some... To, to lighten the mood a little in the room. Here's what he means when he said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He means, Bless the likes of us who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Amen, pass the salt. Well, the biblical banquet is the Lamb's high feast. And the only one to be honored at that banquet that you and I are moving towards was sitting right at the table with them and under attack by them. This Pharisee's exclamation in verse 15 brings another salvo from the Lord Jesus. He would not let the exclamation pass for their soul's sake. He knew their hearts. He knew they had no desire for the kingdom of God, all pious declarations notwithstanding. And Jesus tells a parable, a parable that forces the exclaimer and all the others at the table to ask, when the invitation to this eternal heavenly banquet came, would he accept it? Would he accept God's gracious invitation, or would he be too busy focusing on other trivial matters? In fact, our Lord's parable is meant to puncture the false assurance of men 
who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. Jesus doesn't disagree that the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet or a feast. In fact, he takes the image these Pharisees have of the kingdom of heaven and he uses it in a parable to make his point. He uses the, the symbol of the feast of the kingdom of heaven. And this has immense spiritual significance because it suggests eternal joy and fellowship between God and his people. So look carefully with me at the parable. All of that is just set up. So look at the parable. First you have the invitation extended in verses 16 through 17. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Now notice the key elements about this invitation. It's the invitation to attend a feast. This is a party, a celebration. Many are invited. And apparently the invitees had accepted the invitation, and then they awaited the servant's word to announce the celebration's start. Their initial response is like responding affirmatively to an RSVP request. They had already agreed to come. The host expected them to be there. Now let me explain to you what's going on, because this isn't quite how parties and banquets and feasts happen in our day. A host in first century Palestine would know how many guests were coming. Then he'd butcher plenty of animals and prepare lots of food and drink. Then when the banquet was actually ready, the master would send out his servants urgently saying, tell everyone to hurry and come, everything's ready. So look at verse 16 how Jesus speaks of himself. He's that certain man. He's the man who's giving the banquet and inviting people. And the first invitation he makes is, all of the promises of grace and kindness to Israel in the Old Covenant. When he speaks about preparing a banquet, he's talking about the history of salvation. That for, at this point, 2,000 years, he's been inviting Israel, Old Covenant Israel, to come to the banquet. And the messenger who calls and says, everything is ready, in verse 17, why it's him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who's come right now after 2,000 years into Israel's life, sitting before them and saying, come, the banquet is ready. When he says all things are now ready in verse 17, he means now that he's on the scene, now that the Messiah is on the scene, it's time. The gospel feast is spread. There's nothing else that needs to be done. And notice what the invitation is. It's glorious. Come. He's speaking there of the freeness, the availability of salvation. Think of how often we hear Jesus using this action verb of come. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. In John 7, on a feast day, Jesus stands in the middle of the feast and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The only wise and sensible response to such an offer is, I'm coming. Well, you'd think that everyone, every Israelite, every Jew would be flocking to this banquet, right? You need to think again. Because what the host and his servants get when the invitation goes out is a whole raft of flimsy excuses. In fact, some theologians have even called this the parable of the excuses. What kind of excuses? Look at verse 18 and following. You have there the saga of this invitation being rejected and then withdrawn. 
Look at the first excuse. Uh, Jesus, I can't come to your feast because I've bought land and I need to inspect it. Let's call this the real estate excuse. What fool would buy land and then go see it? Besides, the field will still be there tomorrow. And then there's a second excuse. I bought oxen and I need to test drive them. This is the agricultural excuse. This man apparently had paid for several expensive oxen without knowing whether they could pull a cart. This is like buying five expensive cars without test driving them. The oxen can be tested another day. And then there's a third excuse. Look at verse 20. I've recently married. We'll call this the matrimonial excuse. Well, he could have brought his wife with him. Even newlyweds make provision for occasional times apart. What all of these excuses have in common, notice carefully, is this. They're all fixated on worldly concerns, land, livestock, and earthly relations. And they all really simply show a disinterest in coming to the feast. Look at those three excuses in verse 18, 19, and 20. And if you're a pretty girl, you've used these, you've used these excuses before. And if you're sort of an unattractive guy, you've heard these excuses before. You know this when you're a junior in high school and you call up the pretty girl and you say, could you uh, go out to dinner with me, go to a movie tomorrow night? And the pretty girl, trying to spare your feelings, says, um, I need to stay home and wash my hair. And Jesus has already said to these Israelites in Luke 13 in the previous chapter, you were not willing to come. Now, these Israelites don't grasp what an insult it is to the host, the host of the heavenly banquet who's sitting right there in front of them to refuse his kindness. When Jesus tells about all the invitations being spurned, look what he says in verse 21. The Lord is angry. And look at verse 24. He states his intention to bar the door against them. And what Jesus is saying, listen to me very carefully because this is ethnic in nature. What Jesus is saying to his Jewish hearers around the table is that the door to his heavenly banquet is largely, not completely, largely being barred to them. The custodians of the Old Testament scriptures, those to whom belong the covenant and the promises, the leaders of Israel would be shut out. But then something astounding happens. Already predicted in the Old Testament repeatedly. Isaiah, in the last section of Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 54, the Lord speaking prophetically says, Expand the place of your tent. You shall expand to the right and the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations. In Isaiah 60, Gentiles will come to your light. Psalm 72 that Pastor King just read, All nations shall come to him and serve him. And what you had in the Old Covenant, you had promises of Gentiles coming to faith as Israel was rejecting their Messiah. All these promises and prophecies of the church beginning to expand out into the Gentile world. The church, or to use the metaphor in our parable, the the banquet becomes largely Gentile and universal and international. So look at these new invitees. Look at verse 21. Jesus is still telling his parable. These new invitees that are spoken of, we read, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. In other words, that people rejected the invitation. The master of the house, being angry, said to his servants, 
Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, bringing here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. These new invitees, listen carefully. I want you to get the ethnic makeup of who will be at the banquet. In verse 21, these new invitees are, first of all, the dregs of Jewish society. The lame couldn't work and follow a plow. The blind couldn't see to labor. The maimed were disfigured and disabled. So inevitably, all of these were poor, usually beggars since they would have no other means of support. Poor people didn't get invited to banquets, nor the maimed or the blind or the lame. These were the outcast of society. These were the bottom of the barrel. The reason why in Israel, the physically disabled, if you know your Old Testament law, weren't allowed to be priests in the temple worship by law in Leviticus 21. So the Pharisees used this law to, to justify their prejudice and exclusionary behavior against anyone with disabilities. But according to Jesus, look carefully at verse 21. All of these handicaps are no hurdle to entering the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 21 carefully, a little deeper. Notice several things about these new invitees. They're not just to be invited. They're to be taken by the hand and brought in. Look at the active verb in verse 21. Bring in here. Maybe this is because they're so disabled, or maybe it's because they would have serious doubts that such a banquet is for them. These are the same people who Jesus commands you to invite to your parties and celebrations. Look up at verse 13. When Jesus is rebuking all these men at the, at the party, when he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. These are people who would never be able to reciprocate and return the invitation. So now it all becomes clear. When you're extending kindness and hospitality to the lowly, that's just a picture of what our Christ does in the gospel invitation. This is nothing less than a fulfillment of what Mary sang in the Magnificat. When she sang in Luke chapter 1, the Lord has put down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Well, after these come, after the, the dregs of Jewish society come... There's still room. Now, look carefully because in verse 22 and 23, your name and my name are in here. We are right here in this parable, but we don't show up until verse 22 and 23. We're the others. Look carefully. The servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded. In other words, inviting and compelling the dregs of Jewish society to come to the banquet. And still there is room. So the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges. That's us. Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. If you've ever entertained thoughts about the heavenly banquet, the eternal feast being a small affair, think again. Jesus says, after bringing in the outcasts of Israel, those who lived on the margins Outside the margins of society, there's still plenty of room. It's interesting in the description of the heavenly city in Revelation 21, we're given dimensions that add up to over 2 million square miles. There's room. These numerics actually seem to be symbolic, but the point is that there's actually room for a great multitude that no man can number. This expansion of the banquet shows there is far more willingness on God's part to receive sinners than there is on the part of sinners to come. 
and more grace to be given than there are willing hearts to receive it. There's room for people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. There's room for sinners of every possible description, from the thief on the cross to the Samaritan woman, from Corinthian degenerates to former persecutors of the church like Paul. Many have already come, but there's room for you. So the master broadens the invitation. Look carefully at verse 23. This is where your name and mine are. The master broadens the invitation. Go further out. And by the way, isn't this our mandate for missions? Last weekend I was so delighted. We had four of our superstar missionaries here and just to hear of of how they're going to the ends of the the earth. I think of my dear brother Craig Shepherd, who preached such a phenomenal sermon last Sunday night, who the Lord has taken him to the most populous Muslim nation in the world, Indonesia, 240 million of their residents being Muslims out of the 260 million. And he and Craig and Lisa live in Jakarta, a city of 33 million people. And I said, well, Craig, you'll never run out of people to invite to the heavenly banquet, will you? Well, look what our master does in verse 23. He broadens the invitation. Go further out. Find those who are even less desirable and pull them in. Who would be less desirable than the dregs of Jewish society? Gentiles. This would be hard. The servants would have to go up, go to those people. Look at them in verse 23. People who live in hedges. The loiterers. Those at the very margins of society. They'd have to stop people on the highway to invite them to the heavenly banquet. And notice the word of compulsion in verse 23. Compel them to come in. This doesn't mean coercion or force, but it's an urgent, imploring, passionate invitation. It's what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, We're ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now notice in verse 23 as well, the desire on the part of Christ, the master of the feast, he wants and will settle for nothing less than a full house. He wants every seat at his heavenly banquet to be filled. Look what he says. Compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Jesus is demonstrating the magnanimous, the generous heart of the Father, the wideness and generosity of Jehovah. Our God desires a multitude of guests. The heavenly banquet will not be a quiet affair for a few people or even a few hundred thousand. I don't know. Our God's plan for his heavenly banquet is to have a great number that no man can number at his table. Tens of thousands of the maimed, hundreds of thousands of the blind, Millions of the lame, hundreds of millions of the poor. He wants them all to be at his feast. He wants his heavenly banquet hall packed with them. <coughs> How do we apply this word? I'll make several applications to you today. First of all, no wonder the Pharisees plotted Jesus' death and wanted him killed. He had just told them in the most awkward moment so far in his public ministry. Look at verse 24, what Jesus says to them. He says, I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. They got what he meant. He was saying, none of you people around this table will be at the heavenly banquet. 
Not only would they not be in the best seats, which they were so used to, they wouldn't even be at the feast at all. Because they had rejected the divine invitation that had come through Jesus. What a staggering thought for these people to hear. You will not be there. You're not of the elect. A second application. This heavenly banquet is not a potluck. Men didn't bring anything to it. We, we love those occasions when we have people over and they say, what can I bring? And we say, mocking. We're so insulted. You cannot bring anything. You have to come empty-handed. And when we go to other people's house and they do the same thing, we always kind of know the, these people get it. They understand this, that our hospitality should be a picture of God's hospitality to us. You cannot bring anything to this heavenly banquet. Do you hear Jesus' words in verse 17? Look what he says. Come for all things are now ready. Men don't have to bring anything to this heavenly banquet. What could they bring? Their own righteousness? Their good works? Their earthly status? No. God has done everything necessary to provide this feast. That's why Jesus will cry out on the cross, It's finished. Nothing else is necessary. If you were to be at this heavenly banquet, plan to come empty-handed. Another application. Those who end up enjoying the heavenly banquet are the most unlikely people. You're, you're going to be shocked at the makeup. Remember the, blame, the blind, the maimed, the lame, the poor, those who've been brought in from the highways and hedges. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, You see your calling, brethren. There's not many of you wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things that are despised. That's who God has chosen, so that no flesh should glory in his purpose. That's who God chooses. To add to this, God's elect will be sought and found in the most surprising places. God's elect, those who will come and be seated at the heavenly banquet, will be found in Philippian jails, Ethiopian chariots, by riversides in Macedonia, in the ghettos of Jakarta, Indonesia. Those who will end up enjoying the heavenly banquet are always the most unlikely people. Another application. This parable, and I hope you recognize it, has a distinct missionary evangelistic focus. What are the servants of the master to be doing during this age? You notice we're there. We're those servants now, those who were unlikely and have now been drawn into the house of the master and are his servants. What is it that the servants do during this age? It's our job to call men from everywhere to the feast. That's what missions and evangelism is. Saying to men in every nation under heaven, to people in your neighborhood and school and workplace, the heavenly banquet is ready. Christ has done everything for you to be there. Come, don't delay. Another application you should hear. You have children, parents, siblings, neighbors, co-workers who've rejected the gospel, but they've done so by excuses, frivolous excuses. So we see here in this text. 
Don't be fooled when you invite men and women to the heavenly banquet and they have excuses. Be wise enough to see through the smokescreen. These excuses rise from nothing other than an aversion to Christ, a hatred of Him. Look at verse 18 very carefully. Our text expressly states that they all begin to make excuses. I have heard all of them. Probably you have too. Things like, well, I have intellectual problems with the gospel. God's sovereignty or his exclusivity. I, I, I'm actually too intellectual to, to buy into the gospel. Or, I don't know if the gospel is true, and I don't want to commit myself to something that's untrue. Or, now is not a good time to attend to spiritual concerns. Or, my favorite, I'm turned off by many who profess the gospel. They're hypocrites. And so the makers of these excuses think they're original. They're not. They've all been answered and answered well. Perhaps that's you today. Perhaps you grew up in the church and you've heard the gospel invitation, the invitation to come to the feast, but you've given excuses for rejecting this offer. My friend, hear me carefully. Our Lord Jesus said that he is angry when men reject his gracious invitations and make flimsy excuses. What this parable is teaching us is this. Listen carefully. There is no legitimate excuse for rejecting the gospel invitation to the heavenly banquet. There's not one. But I would say too, to you, by way of invitation, what an encouragement this parable is for people who have not yet responded to the summons to come to the great banquet. There is room for you. The doors are not shut. In fact, finally, do you notice the imagery that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of God? It's not a funeral, it's a feast. We must, as we evangelize and live the Christian life, we must be characterized by a fundamental gladness, a joyful expectancy. We are on our way to a banquet. The Christian life is not one of sourness and bitterness. No, no. Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, first of all, we are so incredibly grateful and thankful that you would invite lowly, unlikely men and women like us to come to your banquet. That you would draw us, you would compel us to come. And Lord, we pray that we would not be stingy about that invitation to co-workers and neighbors and friends and family members. That we too would be going out into the highways and hedges compelling them to come to this heavenly banquet. Lord, make us busy and zealous about this glorious task. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Trinity Psalter Hymnal. And turn to Psalm 32b as we respond to the word Psalm 32b.